Judea, Felix at this time. And the Jews have brought out all of these accusations, and Paul pretty easily rebuffs them. And Felix, he's like, well, I don't know about all this. I, I kind of want to review it for a little while. He doesn't want to offend the Jews, but he can see that Paul's case is pretty, is pretty solid, it's pretty clear. So he hangs on to him. Um, now, this character Felix, he's, he's the procurator of Judea at the time under Rome. He was known to rule with a heavy hand. And eventually that was the thing that lost him his position. He, was, he and his brother Paulus, they were born slaves. And they, uh, they had some pretty impressive careers. They both made it to the upper tiers of, of Roman society. His brother Paulus actually had the ear of the emperor. He was, uh, he was a confidant of Nero for a time. And Felix here, he's a governor over quite a territory. He's married to the sister of Agrippa II, the last of the Herodian line. And um, he's married to her, and he had previously, he had deceptively caused the divorce in her previous marriage so that they could be married. So here we've got this guy. He's not necessarily a stalwart character. He is the one that is that is talking to Paul. So let's look in Acts 24, and let's see, where should we pick up? Let's just start at 22, just to kind of get a bigger scope, <coughs> ending in 26. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. <coughs> but after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self, self-control and faith in Christ Jesus, as he reasoned about these things, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, um, that your word would go forward in spite of of the instrument that you use. I pray that, that, that what you desire to be said and to be pulled from this passage would be. Be with Jeremy this morning as he is, as he is at Palmyra. I pray that you'd continue to bless that ministry and grow it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to start by looking at verse 24. He said, they're sitting here, and he calls... Paul to him, just to kind of have a conversation, speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So they obviously, they found his content kind of interesting, kind of novel, this new religion that's kind of springing up out of Judaism. And, you know, like many people, they were entertained and mentally stimulated to a point by the content. It says that what Paul did in verse 25 was he reasoned. So here's Paul in this very 
high, on this very high-profile platform. And it's really interesting to note how he used that, that platform. It was arguably, other than going to seizure, this is one of the highest-profile platforms available to anyone alive. And the way he used it is very interesting. He didn't, he didn't use it to reiterate his innocence. He set out to preach the gospel no matter what, where, or when, and that never changed for him. No matter what situation he was in, that was what he planned on doing, and that's what he did. And another thing that he, he didn't do, he didn't bring out any, there were no sociopolitical issues that he wanted to talk about. He didn't lobby for the less fortunate, not for more equality. Not a word was said about oppressive power structures. We're told that he reasoned, he talked about three things. He talked about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. <clears throat> now, that's very interesting. Because if you look back at what you would consider the most of the very important conversations that you've had in your life, it's usually about some big decision, a job, an investment, a marriage, something like that. But not, not righteousness or self-control or some future boogeyman judgment. So let's, let's look at these three things. First of all, righteousness. Righteousness refers to being morally whole, morally sound in front of God, innocent according to his law. We know what righteousness is in the Bible because it's laid out succinctly in Ten Commandments. No other gods are for you. Have no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath on your parents. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And Felix and his wife, <coughs> for the most part, could agree with what righteousness looked like. Like most people today, they could agree, for the most part, with what it looks like. Be a good person, basically. And, you know, and that's, that's still mostly the same today. And then he talked about Self-control. So self-control, it's interesting that it is separated from righteousness. Just, just enough. Enough that he mentions it separately. He doesn't, he's not saying the same thing. Self-control, you can call it temperance or discipline. Now, while they could agree with what righteousness is, it is still different. And as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, he called it the practical application of righteousness. It's living out your righteousness. Um, Jones also had a, an illustration that he used to kind of show this. He talked about um, a political figure, and I think it was during the First World War in England. Some political figure was talking about how immoral the aggressions of Germany were and how this is just absolutely unconscionable and wrong. And, you know, everyone would agree with him, yeah, this is, this is just wrong. It's, it's unprincipled. Well, come to find out that same man was cheating on his wife. So agreeing on what righteousness is and then living it out are, are actually quite separate, living it out in self-control. And it's also good to note that self-control or temperance is also a fruit of the Spirit. So this is something that is going to be present where God is. <clears throat> and thirdly, he talks about judgment. And this is probably the most alarming one, I would assume. 
the other two might pose an inconvenience to someone. But this one, it would, it would be the alarming. It's the gravity of the reality of God. If God is real, then sin is a significant problem. If his righteousness, his clean perfection is offended, if his mercy and patience and his perfect sacrifice is turned down and thrown aside, then there is an absolute perfect, you'll notice the word perfect comes up a lot whenever you, you begin to talk about God's judgment. There is an absolute perfect and thorough punishment that balances out the offense. To the fullness of his perfection is the extent of his punishment. And to the other side, to the complete perfection of his sacrifice and the depth of his mercy, there is reward. And no one else is fit, is perfect enough to be judged, but God. So the notion of judgment and hell make us uncomfortable. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable, like it, like it did Felix. When, but when we shirk from the notion of judgment on the grounds of mercy, like when you say, <clears throat> and I've, I've heard people say this, how could a loving God punish someone to hell forever? When we want to sidestep any notion of hell or judgment, what we are actually doing is sidestepping the greatness of God's righteousness which we have offended. And we are at the same time minimizing the greatness of his mercy and his sacrifice when we make less of it, when we want to sidestep the doctrine of hell. So when you ask how could a loving person send someone to hell, you are, and please try to follow me here, we're actually minimizing the depth of sin that required such a great mercy that produced such a radical sacrifice to cover such a horrible offense. Now, I'll say that again. <clears throat> so if it was confusing, you'll be double confused. We are actually minimizing the depth of sin that required such a great mercy that produced such a radical sacrifice to cover such a horrible sin. So if you follow those threads out, to say that God is unloving to send people to hell is actually logically making God less loving as a whole. Such beliefs make less of our sin. It makes less of Christ's sacrifice. <clears throat> and less of God's perfection and glory. To say that, it, that sin should not be utterly punished forever minimizes all of those things. I'm not going to ask if that makes sense because I don't know that I can, I can explain it much better. And God is the judge. When it comes to judgment, most people prefer that God is not so godly. Actually, when it comes to judgment, we, we really prefer a God who's not that much of a God at all. It's ironic, too, to note that Paul was being judged while talking about judgment. But the way that God was on that Paul was on trial was nothing compared to the way that Felix and everyone else will be on trial someday. Cuz here Paul was an innocent man standing before corrupt politicians. Paul was literally 
Well, to, you know, Paul was an innocent man here, and these politicians were far more corrupt than he was, as opposed to us standing before God, absolutely guilty. It's undeniable, which is what made it so alarming also. <clears throat> and here it's good to know that Paul was living out his righteousness under self-control in front of them by being on trial. So it, it says that he was, he was alarmed. Uh, some translations, he was fearful, he was afraid. Something in these words, in Paul's words on these subjects, brought fear to this important political man. And you must note that if Felix didn't see the validity, the reason to what Paul was saying, it wouldn't have bothered him. If there wasn't something realistic to what he was saying, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have had that kind of response. He would have rolled his eyes at it. But it made enough sense to touch a nerve, and he didn't like it. So he sent him away, it says. He didn't, he didn't have the integrity of logic to, to work out what he, was, what he was feeling. He couldn't stand to tell himself or to be told the truth long enough to get to the hope part of the message. He had enough sense to be alarmed by it. That was the obvious response. And he was obviously not living in righteousness and self-control. But he was obviously convicted by the truth. But notice the blind depth of his sin. Even though he was alarmed by what he was told, even though it had some effect on him, it had some impact on him, you can see the corrupt reason why he kept Paul around. He, he, uh, he wanted a bribe. The terrifying thing is that Felix was able to harden his conscience. He kept having conversations with Paul, but it wasn't to further learn about these things. It wasn't to further work out the logic of what he was hearing. He was just buying time for a bribe. And in doing that, he violated his own reason, and he left a shipwreck of his conscience. He made his conscience completely worthless to him. He made it unusual, untrustworthy, and absolutely no kind of a guide to him at all. And for us, practically, this is the very real danger of not, not responding to conviction. <clears throat> so, on those points, an uncomfortable, fearful conviction should always and arguably does always accompany salvation. Whenever the reality of your plight is seen, it should be terrifying if your brain is working. And it is naturally what comes before repentance. If you haven't experienced this repentance, you haven't come to Christ. If you look through the teaching, even all the way back to the Old Testament teaching, that's kind of the clinch pin. The, I heard a pastor say one time, he was talking about the Old Testament prophets, where all they taught was repent, repent, repent. And it was kind of funny the way he said it. He said, you know, you'd call the people together, they'd come out, good morning, repent, let's pray. That was the totality of the message, is repentance. And the scary part is, is that if you have ever been bitten by conviction in hearing the Word of God, and you learn to turn it off, this should be a warning to you. 
In the end, Felix puts Paul away with, with the hope for his own devices. And on account of how he ruled, he's recalled to Italy and replaced. In the end of it all, the, the Jews finally make enough ruckus and they send him back to Rome. He gets recalled to Rome. And I believe there was even a trial. And uh, one source, it might have been Josephus, said he, he, he could have been put to death if it wasn't for his influential brother. So he ends up in a little town in southern Italy <coughs> where, the, where the rich people went to live. And he and his wife died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. They actually died in Pompeii, which is, which is just remarkable. He dies down there in, in all of his, living amongst his rich friends, living the, the rich life when that volcano erupted. Then we have another character. Let's look over at chapter 26. Let's see, starting in Okay, I'm going to jump in at verse 24. So he gives his he gives his uh Well, before that, there's a new guy Festus that comes in. Festus he comes in. He only lived for 2 years. The historians say that he was better than the guy before and after him. And he comes in, he's trying to make sense of this trial. What he, he, the way he approaches it seems to be fairly ethically. He kind of wants to get to the bottom of it. He doesn't know how to, how to push the case to Caesar. He says, I don't know what to say about this. I don't, I don't have a, a fair grasp on it. So he goes before Agrippa to say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, Paul makes his case. He talks about what happened to him. He, gives a, he tells of his conversion. He even gives some of the, the content of, of what he preaches. Uh, he, said he, he declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the regions of Judea, and to all the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Um, there's quite a bit of other story in there, but for the sake of time, I just want to look at these two conversations. So let's look at verse 24. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a quarter. The, the uh, trial of Jesus, the life, burial, and resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his life, you know, it was, it was news. What hasn't been done in a corner? King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So this is, <clears throat> he, what he does is he hits Agrippa on the nose of what he himself claims to believe. In 26 and 27, he, he points out that Agrippa claims to believe the same foundational truth 
that Paul is basing his beliefs on. He says, you believe the prophets, don't you? He's making a good enough point that all you had to do was believe the prophets, and it was very hard to argue against Paul's case. And Paul's point to him is saying, if one plus one equals two, then one plus one plus one must equal three. So you can unpack and apply that by saying simply that if what you believe, what you claim you believe doesn't change you, then you don't really believe it, plain and simple. And Agrippa here, he shows the characteristics of modern-day people who claim to believe in God. They will say that they love our Christian values and acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus and be totally unchanged by it, gain absolutely no righteousness, no self-control, or acknowledge the reality of any final judgment. For example, the, the churches in America will be packed on Easter and Christmas and fairly sparse the rest of the year. Now, I would say that based on what we read here, a packed church on Easter is an uncomfortable place to be, terrifying even. Because the preacher on Easter always gives the most basic, the clearest gospel. Life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the reason he died, his burial and resurrection, how you can come to know him, and how you should come to be changed by it. Most of the attendees will hear it and ignore it for another 365 days and leave totally unchanged by that information that they themselves profess to be true, true enough to show up for Grandma on Easter. Someone is lying to themselves. The reality of God does not give you the option to be unchanged by it. And Agrippa, sadly, you can see he dodges the question. Paul really puts it in his face. Do you believe these things to be true? You watched it happen with the rest of the nation. It makes sense. I'm making a good enough argument here. Agrippa sidesteps it. He's, you know, apparently religious content is nothing to take too seriously. He said, well, would you, <laughs> would you have me become a Christian so quickly in one, in one sitting? Would you, would you convince me? And like most of us, like many, like those who pack the church on Easter, it's not something to take very seriously. My work, the kids' sports, the markets, my investments, my hobbies, the issues at work and school and in politics, those are the things that you want to get riled up about. You know, make serious sacrifices for, put effort into. These things that last a short season beyond our brief lives. But the issue of eternity and all the things that stare us all, the, all of these transcendental issues that stare us in the face day after day, proclaiming to us the reality of sin, a creator, morality, and judgment. We leave that for a couple hours a week or once a year. And the urgency of the reality of God is completely ignored. And we think we're so smart and so logical. And yet our identity doesn't match up with what we claim to believe. They didn't get everything wrong. They got a few things right, Felix and Agrippa. What they got right is there is an appropriate discomfort. There is a fear. And our pride is immediately offended by it. Contrary to popular belief, there's nothing wrong 
with the teachings of the gospel or of the Bible. What's wrong is that our pride immediately resists it, and our pride will do anything to keep from accepting our sinful condemned state. And humans have for generations practiced, we have generations of practice at making a good argument against the message of the gospel, make it appealing, but what it basically is, is, is our pride. Even We even go so far as to deny the existence of God altogether in order to protect my ego from condemnation. And if not our pride, then our lack of self-control gets in our way. Here is Paul, he's talking to royals, but we're no different. The message of the gospel is just so inconvenient. To do it away with all of these little habits, sins that we comfort ourselves with, and to change, fundamentally to change our identity, would be so difficult, so humiliating. And the gospel does change your identity. And at some level, I would submit that this is the reason that social reform wasn't on Paul's radar. It wasn't in his talking points in this high-profile conversation. If we understand the gospel, then we understand that we deserve way less and receive way more through the work of Christ than what we deserve. The New Testament's, look, all the way through the gospels, the, the New Testament's, and for 300 years after the gospel, the New Testament Christian's identity is humbled far below any social class, and it seeks no avenue to advance itself, even, even to rise out of persecution. The logical Christian expects to be a part of a fundamentally oppressed group and is fine, even happy with this reality. Paul says himself, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the way Christ lives. Should we, will we live any better? Paul wasn't pushing for social reform. He was pushing for radical personal change, and he was pushing for the glory of God. And for these guys, the impact that such a belief would have on a, such a high-profile person like Felix or Agrippa was obvious to them. They could see immediately what this belief would do. And they could, they could see in these conversations that to believe in Christ was to turn their worlds upside down. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't stomach it. And then what they got wrong. Fundamentally, what they get wrong is that they failed to see Christ as better. You could argue that the entire book of Hebrews what it was written to show that Christ is better, and that is what they failed to see. So since, since God was nothing to these guys, sin was nothing to these guys. So there was no call in them for repentance. If you find that you have not either been frightened by your sin or your heart broken by it, this is your issue. If you haven't been scared by sin, if you haven't had your heart broken by sin, Here's your issue. God is truly nothing to you. Who God is, his identity, is nothing to you. So your sin is nothing to you. You don't believe what you say you do. Believing in Christ is to turn your world over and to die to self. And it is and continually will be in our nation. We will continue to realign with what the New Testament Christians were. And that is to be maligned and oppressed for your beliefs. 
because these beliefs run contrary to what the world's pride wants. But you can see that they were the ones that weren't following logic. If it was so compelling, so alarming, why would they refuse to hear it unless they were ignoring reason? They were either thinking of their own comfort, thinking of how this message would sound in Rome, or thinking of how much trouble such an offensive message would cause in the territories that they ruled over. But they were definitely, or they were thinking about bribes. For sure they were thinking about bribes. But they were, one thing they were for sure not thinking about, and that's repentance. Repentance is at the center of our message. It means literally to turn around, change course, to turn away from sin and not pursue it anymore. So that leaves, we, we have no record of either of these guys ever, ever being saved. Very likely they were not. Where, where you can track them in history, they lived troubled lives and died. So the question is, is in these two conversations that Paul had, did God lose? Did Paul fail and God lose? So, <coughs> first off, Jesus lived a perfect righteousness in perfect self-control and was still judged for our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that our well-deserved judgment could be satisfied by his being punished. That is the ultimate statement that so many so-called Christians claim to believe but remain unchanged by. What these men were ultimately rejecting was the opportunity to be justified before God through Christ. What was unacceptable to them was how it would change their lives. So, to answer, did God lose here? No, because, and this is just to tiptoe into the edge of this argument, God is just as glorified in his just punishment of sin as he is glorified in his forgiving mercy. Perfect justice does just as much to glorify God as forgiveness. It is another aspect of his perfection. If his, if his justice was not complete and perfect, then God would not be complete and perfect, and God would not be God. And our, our purpose, Paul's purpose, was not to make God win. That wasn't what he was there for. It wasn't to make God win. Me failing, God doesn't sit up there and say, well, shucks, I would have I done well if it wasn't for that guy. We do not serve a disappointed God. Our purpose is not to make God win because he already has. Our, so our desire to see people come to Christ, like Paul said before, before uh, Agrippa, it should come from our own love of people and the, our desire for, our, for their good. It should come from what God has already changed and transformed in our lives and how it changed our identity and the way that we look at other people. But our main purpose is to enjoy the glory of God. Fundamentally, what they got wrong, yes, is that they failed to see Jesus as perfect. But the glory of God was absolutely nothing to them. It's the same thing that the Christians who pack churches on Easter fail, fail at. 
it's the glory of God means nothing to them. It's not their highest thing. Making the glory of God the biggest thing in your life, it is the most logical thing that you can do because it is fundamentally the reason we were created. It is the reason everybody always wants to ask the deep question, why are we here? That is why. God is glorified in justice and in, in mercy and in the way that it changes people's lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your glory. God, I pray that you would make it the centerpiece of our desire. Make it the centerpiece of our desire so that our joy will be full and complete because it is the thing that will most certainly happen and does most certainly come to pass. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.